ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Rizzotto. What's going on, everybody, and welcome. I'm doing this intro without my mic, so bear with me. My name is Steven Rizzotto. I cover the San Francisco Giants for SFA, and I'm the host of RizzoCast, a podcast that features current and former big league players, coaches, fans, media, and others who are regarded as some of the brightest minds around our great game today. Today's guest is Zach Bay Rudy, the play-by-play broadcaster for the Sacramento Rivercats, the AAA affiliate of the San Francisco Giants. Zach was previously the voice of the Stockton Ports for 14 seasons and later the Reno Aces for three. He also has been the voice of the University of Pacific men's basketball team since 2010. We discuss his career in broadcasting, bonding with the fan base, calling basketball games compared to baseball, his play-by-play style, storytelling, his big league debut a few years back, making mistakes, even some Giants prospect talk, all all coming up next. This is episode number 158 of RizzoCast, and let's get started. All right, and we are back here with Zach Bay Rudy, and Zach is nice enough to take some time and hop on the podcast. Zach, how's it going? Happy holidays. Welcome. Happy holidays, Stephen. It's going well, and uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, and and like I just said, tis the season for the holidays, and we just came off Thanksgiving, Christmas coming up, the holidays coming up. Uh, what is it? I mean, this is the time for gift giving too. So are you, are you a big gift giver? Do you wait last minute to get gifts? Do you pre-prepare this stuff? Like, give me your routine on, on giving gifts. Cause I know you got kids, so that's another big part of it. There's like different, there's different elements and variety that you have to deal with here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a dad, a relatively new dad. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So my three-year-old is just kind of realizing what Christmas is all about and that you maybe get some gifts on Christmas morning. So this is kind of going to be really the first year where she's aware of that. So we'll probably get her, you know, it's a, a gift or two. That's a little nice. And I mean, the one-year-old, he's not going to know the difference. Right. So uh, I think it was Cat Williams, the comedian who was like, I'm not going to spend a hundred dollars on a gift. I'm going to go to the dollar store and get a hundred gifts for a dollar. Cause my kids don't know the difference and they get to open up a hundred presents for a hundred dollars instead of like the one big gift. So that's probably where we're headed. Like we'll get a bunch of little trinkets for the kids just cause they're so young. And then for my wife, like we were big on just getting each other experiences and not spending money on gifts for each other. But it's like, hey, let's go here or let's get this thing that we've been wanting for the house. So that's that's kind of how we do it. Yeah, just a, a cabinet for the living room or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. We need some pots <laughs> and pans, you know, like some real adult stuff. So it's like, yeah, yeah let's spend $300 on those instead of, you know, buying each other whatever. Yeah, it's funny. In my family, it seems like every year we're going on like five straight years where somebody's gotten an air fryer. And it's like, like I feel like everybody's gotten one. In the, and... Don't sleep on the air fryer, man. <laughs> no, it's, it's clutch. It's such a useful kitchen tool. We, we, we live off that thing, especially with kids. Like throw some dino nugs in there on a yeah. tough night and, and you got dinner. Yeah, no, it's clutch. But at this point, people are getting like upgrades like from previous Christmases like, oh, I got it four years ago. Now we're just getting the newer version. So uh, I-, I think it's better than the Crock-Pot. I think we'll, we'll we'll stay. That might be a hot take, but I don't no, know. That's, that's a pretty hot take. But I would actually agree. I think there's so many uses. It's like the Swiss Army knife of, of kitchen cooking tools, the the air fryer. Yeah, without a doubt. And we could continue that. But that's a podcast <laughs> for another day. Um, 
So you're spending your time right now. Baseball season's over, of course. You're spending your time right now covering um, some basketball, doing uh, some voice, uh, some I, I like to say voice acting. No, not voice acting. Some play-by-play for the University of Pacific basketball team. Uh, you are on the road right now. Uh, how has that been? And, and how is usually that transition like from, you know, doing baseball for, you know, a handful of months out of the year and then kind of having that break Trey Wilson on the last episode mentioned it and now kind of going into basketball because it's kind of an interesting transition two very different sports. Yeah. Well, this is my, I'm lucky. This is my 14th season doing basketball for Pacific. So I'm used to it now, but it's just an interesting change in, in the rhythm of your life, I guess. Like baseball is such an everyday grind and, and for the summer months you get so used to living your life a certain way. And then basketball comes around. And once you get to like the conference season, it, it gets more rhythmic. You know, WCC, they, they tend to have most of their games on Thursdays and Saturdays. So that's your cadence. But in the non-conference, it's just kind of whatever, however they build the schedule. So we're on a road trip right now where we're at, we just played at Northern Arizona yesterday. And then we go to Moscow, Idaho for our next game. And it's on the same trip. So we, we have an off day in the middle of all this that we're spending in, in Scottsdale. So it's, it's different for sure going from, from baseball to basketball. And then on air, it takes a little while to, to come around because baseball, so you, even with the pitch clock now where you can't tell stories as much, you can still kind of be wordy, if you will, and expand on, on what you're seeing and tell stories about players. Whereas basketball, especially when you're on radio, it, you're, you're describing areas on the floor, you're talking about plays as they happen. And obviously it's a faster sport. So uh, it's it's interesting going from one to the other, and it's taken me a little while to to get used to the transition. But I think now I make the transition a little bit quicker than I used to. And I want to ask about because it's it's two very different personalities that you deal with. Obviously, you're you're in contact with people, and you know during the course of a Triple A season or a, or a minor league season, the players are a little bit more mature than those in college, and that's that kind of goes without saying. Uh, so is there like a difference when you go from like, you know, 25, 26 year olds and you're dealing with them all day and then you go to like, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds. And it's like, you know, they, they give shorter answers. I know this cause I've had a few of them on, like whenever I talk to somebody who's like about to get drafted or a college baseball player, like you could tell some, some guys are, are better than others, but it, it it's probably different for you, especially maybe as you're getting older. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing, and it is true with both instances, it it keeps me young. Um, You know, even with now the 25, 26 year olds are, they're kind of younger to me and it's, I'm 40. So when I was coming up, I was, I was for a long time, felt like I was the same age as a lot of the players, you know, even when I was in Stockton for those 14 years, the the players at, at that point, high A, when it was a high A franchise, but yeah, you go from, from guys who, are polished and have been through everything as a professional. I'll throw Joey Bard as an example, you know, like that guy has lived life. He's been through all kinds of, you know, transitions and, 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 and seasons in his life. And then you go from that to kids who are 18, 19 years old, who are just breaking into college and learning what some, you know, I'll even call it semi pro now because you can make money doing it, but learning what it's like to be part of like a, a professional team in a professional setting it's uh, it's definitely different, but over the years, I think I've gotten to know how to deal with both um, and how to bring the, the hopefully the most out of both when I'm interviewing or asking questions. But it, it keeps me young. That's the the common thread for sure. 
you don't look a day over 30, man. I mean, I, <laughs> when you said the 14 years at University of Pacific, I was like, oh, this guy's probably not in his late 20s, you know, early 30s. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny because I always hear at the AAA level and we'll get into kind of the chronological stuff in just a second. But I always hear about the AAA level like there's bitterness. And when somebody goes up, there's, you know, some bitterness. It should have been me. And everybody's trying to get to the same place. And I always feel like that's kind of minor league baseball in a nutshell in, you know, a lot of ways, maybe not all, but do you, do you feel that? I know you're, you're in the booth, maybe you're not in the dugout during games, but do you feel like there's a sense of like bitterness or, you know, is the, the team aspect still a part of it? Cause I know a lot of it has to be individualized. That has to be the mindset to get to the big leagues, but do you notice that at all? Maybe some bitterness? Um, maybe bitterness would be one way to put it. I think when you put it into context, you know, especially at the AAA level, you're dealing with players that, yes, they're trying to make it, uh, they're trying to stick, uh, whether it be on the 40 man or for, you know, a, a brief call up or you have a new organization, whatever. But a lot of these guys have families. Mm-hmm. So I think when you factor that in, you know, you're trying to make it in one of the hardest places to make it. In, in professional baseball and you're a lot of guys are dealing with, Hey, am I going to move my family out here? Where are we going to set up shop for the summer? By the way, and I, I can empathize with this because I'm a, a new dad, as I said, like trying to do all this while being a good parent and, and raise your kids the right way. Like there's a lot that happens and is compressed in, in, a, in a baseball season. Uh, you know, so bitterness could be an adjective used to describe what, what players feel, but I think, when you put it into a proper context, I think it's more like they're trying to figure out the best way forward for, for themselves and their families. And it's stressful. And you're doing all this while you're competing and on the high wire in front of all these people. And, you know, in the case of a media market like San Francisco, I mean, it's, it's everyone is scrutinized on the 40 man and a triple a and your name's out there in, in the news and on Twitter. And like, that's a lot going on. So, you know, could be bitterness. It also could be just you're in a really stressful environment and trying to be the best person and and sometimes parent and husband you can be. Yeah, good answer. Because bitterness is not the right word. Um, <laughs> you can get bitter for sure. Like you could, you could absolutely get bitter, and I've seen it. You know where guys think that they're they're deserving of of that spot, and it doesn't happen for them. And you know, there's a lot of factors obviously that come into play when you when you start talking about that. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. All right, uh, just kind of on your journey, how did you get into baseball? Like when, like growing up, like what teams, what players? How did you kind of get into into the game, and and who did you like watching? So I'm from Worcester, Mass, and I'm a diehard. I grew up a diehard Red Sox fan. I mean, I've certainly mellowed over the years. Now I, I root for people. I've been in the game almost two decades, so you know that fan part of me has kind of gone away. I, I root for guys that I know and organizations that I've come to appreciate. But growing up as a Red Sox fan in Massachusetts, I mean, that's a great incubator to, to go on to do what I do and, and to live a baseball life. I mean, I went to Northeastern in Boston, Northeastern University, and it's a five, 10 minute walk from Fenway. So like my friends and I used to go the morning of the games. It was kind of like nobody, nobody, they never put it out there. The Red Sox never really put it out there. But if you knew it was like a speakeasy thing, like the day of the game, they sold standing room and obstructed view for anywhere between 15 and 20 bucks. So, I mean, I went to all those 
Pedro Clemens games at Fenway when I was in college for cheap and just, you know, standing room. And we were just having a good time watching all that. And, um, you know, I was lucky the year before I started working in baseball, it was the year the Red Sox won the World Series in 04. So I got to experience that elation as a fan after all the heartbreak for so many years. Like before I started working in baseball, I got to know what it felt like to be a fan who was kind of, I say, long suffering. Shoot, I was 22 or whatever. But, you know, I'd suffered through being a Red Sox fan the early part of my life and thinking my team was cursed and never going to win the World Series. And then to experience that as a fan was was awesome before I started working in baseball. So that's kind of how I got into it. I actually wanted to be a, a writer. I interned at the Boston Globe. I was a journalism major and I thought I wanted to be a writer. And I uh, had an internship, my second internship, my co-op at Northeastern was in uh, Jupiter, Florida at the spring training home of the, the Florida Marlins at the time and uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, they shared ballpark. And so I was the press box intern. Like I was the media relations intern and, through that, I ended up meeting someone who was a broadcaster in the Florida State League who, uh, you know, I, he asked me to go on air with him one day, just have someone to talk to because the stadiums were always empty during the, the minor league season in the Florida State League. And so we kind of developed a rapport and he was like, you'd be good on air if you ever wanted to do that. He ended up getting the job in Stockton. Um, he hired me to be his assistant, like literally a, a week after I had finished my classes at Northeastern, I moved out to Stockton sight unseen. And he left after a year uh, as the voice of the ports. And then they asked me to be the next guy. And I ended up staying there for 14 more years, which is crazy. So almost like, you know, there's, there's some, is there some luckiness to kind of, you know, all of these oh, opportunities? It's, it's stupid. I mean, it's really, really, you know, people ask all the time, especially kids coming up who want to do this, like how, what's, what's the way forward. And I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I got so lucky. I landed, you know, I, I met someone who saw something in me, number one. Number two, I landed in Stockton with an organization that had a need the year after I got there because the guy who brought me out there ended up leaving to pursue other opportunities. And they just said, hey, you've been doing this, you know, part time with him. Like, do you want to keep doing it? And then number three, like the, the organization, uh, the Stockton Ports valued the broadcast. And now you're coming to a point in time where a lot of teams, I think, are not valuing the, the broadcast as much as I think they should. And I think as much as the fans value it, uh, I, you know, I, I think that fans value a good baseball broadcast. And I was lucky to land with an organization in stocks and that did value it and kept me around as long as they did. Like I had a job in perpetuity there and it, it allowed me to kind of hang around. And then the job in Reno came open and I took that. And then, you know, the job in Sacramento came open, which was a whole other story. And that was the, I mean, the biggest stroke of luck ever. So uh, yeah, you have to be lucky. Um, you know, you have to obviously hone the craft, but you have to be lucky and, and have people in your life that help you get to where you are and ultimately stay where you are. And and that's like why I mean, it's interesting if you look around like the media job landscape, you know, there's a few ways to look at it. Right. There's jobs opening up and then some people say there's not enough jobs opening up. And, and I don't know which one it is. I haven't done the research, but it always seems like the people that get jobs are the people that like are in-house or internal have been there and they get promoted and, and, you know, interns get hired, you know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, you didn't expect your broadcast partner to leave, but when he did that, that gave you kind of that opportunity. Um, and, and 14 years in Stockton around that, uh, that time. And then the time that you spent in um, with the university of Pacific, I mean, 
that's a long time to be somewhere. And I feel like there's value in that, that, you know, the same value that we take into when we look at the Hall of Fame ballot, something like that. And we say Joe Maurer was with the same team for a long time. Chipper Jones, same team. Derek Jeter, same team. It, how much value is there to be in one place for a long period of time, especially with the listeners and the, the you know, building that connection with the team, not only the team, but also the audience? So much value, so much value. I mean, the, the relationship you have with the listener is is one thing for sure, but it also, when you stay in a place for a long time, it allows you to, to put things in proper context. You know, I think a big element of, of good broadcast is being able to have a, like a historical backdrop to what's happening now. You know, it's like, oh, this is the worst loss or the best win since going back to whatever. And maybe you were there to watch that, you know, like when I was, with Stockton for 14 years, I pretty much was an encyclopedia of Stockton Ports history yep. since they'd become an Oakland A's affiliate. Like I, I, and I knew it top of mind because I called all those games and, and I enjoyed going back and talking about those games. And I had vivid memories. If I was going back seven years about a game that happened and you know now we have this record about to be set or whatever, breaking a record from this particular game, like I was able to really paint the picture and tell the story of the, the game from the past. So like for me as a history guy too, uh, I, I am very lucky to have been with, you know, both the ports and, and with UOP for as long as I have. And then now with the river cats, it's funny. Uh, you walk into the press box in, in, in Sacramento at Sutter health park, and there's like a, a wrap and it, it's, it's the backs of players that are sitting in the bullpen from like 2009 and that's the wrap that goes around where the writers sit. And all those guys are guys that I had in Stockton in 2007, 2008. And, and it's just funny because I can tell the story of the Sacramento Rivercats organization in those years because I knew those players from Stockton. That's right. And I really appreciate having that connection in my life. And I, I, I knew a lot of those guys and I was close with a lot of those guys. So I think there's a ton of value in being in a place for a, a long period of time. Yeah, no doubt about it. And and just ask ask Johnny Doskow, and that's kind of the guy that you replaced, right, in Sacramento. Yeah. And um, I, did you ever have any conversations with him about that job prior to kind of you know taking the position, or because I, I mean, obviously you knew of him, and 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 the market that he was doing it, he's a legend in AAA baseball in the P, in the Pacific Coast League, and um, I mean, and now he's obviously got this great story being with the A's finally getting to the big leagues after so much time. So what was the conversation, if any, with, with Johnny Doskow? So me and Johnny are really close. Um, and it's, it's, it goes back to the mid two thousands and 20 teens when, you know, I was down the road in Stockton when the A's were there is that, that was the high affiliation for the A's was Stockton. Um, and obviously Sacramento for a long period of time, most of their existence, the AAA affiliate of the A's. So we'd have players go up and down a lot. Like they call it the I-5 shuttle. Like if, if Sacramento needed a guy, like you know, we sent a guy from Stockton and Johnny would reach out and say, Hey, what do you got on this guy? He's, you know, with us for the next couple of days. And, you know, we'd have lunch over the years or brekkie, as he likes to say, he loves breakfast. So, Hey bro, let's go get brekkie. Uh, so we'd, we'd, you know, we'd talk and, we'd share experiences. And he was a guy that came up uh, through the Cal league. And I, I was in the Cal league for a long time. So we had a lot, always had a lot to talk about. And uh, if anyone knows Johnny, uh, first of all, Dan Brown had a great piece in the athletic, basically profiling him. And it's 
It, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it, it gets you, I, I was lucky enough to be quoted in it, but it, it gets you familiar with who Johnny is as a, as a person and the opportunity that he finally has, like, which is long overdue for him. This is a, you know, an opportunity he should have had a, a decade ago. So uh, yeah, I mean, we obviously talked and, and before I took over and just kind of got his feel for what the job was, the, the importance of it, you know, how to, how to be the voice of the river cats in the, in the capital city. Right. I mean, it's a big media market and now it's the AAA affiliate of the giants. So there's that element in, involved too, which is, it, it, it's huge. Um, and Johnny was a big North star for me in, in taking over that job and, and uh, making me feel comfortable in, in filling those shoes. Yeah. It's nice to know that there's that, that camaraderie with the broadcasters. Cause I hear about it when I listen to interviews with a lot of big league broadcasters and they talk about going into a visiting city and then hearing about, you know, how's your team been doing and, and how that conversation, how important that is. So it's nice to know that there's some of that going on in Stockton and, and Sacramento and kind of being in the same or parent organization for a little bit there. Um, what are your like, st- like, what would you consider your style to be? Cause I know everybody's got their own play-by-play style. Some people like, you know, are more energetic than others. Others are more kind of like, you know, they keep it, they keep it straight. Uh, what are your strengths and weaknesses as a broadcaster? Like, I know that's a pretty deep question, but I'm going to ask you to kind of critique yourself. What do you do? Well, what do you feel like, you know, I've never done this well, but it's still something I'm working on. What's your style? So my, I would say my style is, is journalistic. Um, you know, it's who, what, when, where, why, how first objective objectivity. Yeah. And you know, I mean, if I'm, if I'm calling a river cats game, like, obviously that's where my heart is. That's a team that I work for. If I'm calling a Pacific basketball game, like I'm going to be enthused when something positive happens, but first and foremost, I think with the, with the broadcaster is supposed to be as a conduit for the audience. Um, and your boots, you're basically boots on the ground and, for people that can't be there, they can see the game through your eyes, especially if they're listening on the radio. So I think it's important to be as detailed as, as possible without being like cumbersome about it, you know, but you want to give details and especially with baseball, like something as simple as where are the shadows on the field, you know, because it affects everything. Where's the sun? How are the clouds hanging that day? Where's the breeze blowing? You know, those, those types of things and, and very journalistic types of things to allow the audience to, to step in the ballpark with you and, and to see the game exactly how you're seeing it. So for me, and, and trying to tell the stories of the players, obviously. So for me, the journalism is number one. Uh, if I had to critique myself and, and say something that I wish I could be better at, I mean, like the, the, the big call, like the, the home run call, like I don't, I don't really like the gimmicky stuff. So I've never really gone there with like having any kind of a home run call or anything like that. Um, what, what I've had to train myself to do. And I think this goes back to Vin Scully, something that he had said, like, you never want to be the guy that screams, you know, when there's a big play, like you, you want to be excited without screaming. I think the guy who does it the best is probably Ken Korak. If you listen to an A's game and, and I try and kind of channel Ken in those big moments where, you know, his voice is, is, uh, it rises to the occasion of the moment without being overbearing and without, you know, yelling in your ear hole. So I think I could probably be better when it comes to that. And that's something that takes a lot of time to figure out, uh, if you're just getting in, like it takes a little time to figure out how to be, how to meet the moment without, without 
stepping on it too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, Ken's a br- great broadcaster. He's up for the Ford C Frick Award. You so should get it. I'd, uh, yeah, I'd shout him out, him and Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Kruko and Joe Buck. And there's a handful of others. And everybody on that list is very deserving. And I think the way they do it needs to be a little like shifted so a lot more guys could get in especially when they're living. So they have that opportunity. Um, But Korak, I met him actually on the field. Um, I was the uh, scholarship winner for the the A's journalism scholarship this past summer. And he was there. Thank you. He presented the, uh, the, the big check on the field and, I was like, man, do I get, cause I've always seen the big check stuff. I was like, do I get to take that home? And then I get there and it's a whiteboard. I'm like, oh, this ruins. Cause everybody oh, thinks it's a big piece of cardboard, right? That's what I was thinking. And then, then right after I left, I see it being erased. I'm like, oh, I don't get to That's take a it. bummer, man, that they yeah. pulled back the curtain for you like that. <laughs> yeah. But Ken Korak was great. Great in presenting it. And uh, yeah, hopefully he does get a lot of consideration, even get in. That'd be awesome. Um, and you mentioned kind of your your style. Did it take a while to get comfortable? Because you know you started this when you were pretty young. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, older broadcasters might feel like they have more leeway, but did it take some time for you to kind of? And this might you know be different in Stockton and Sacramento because maybe it took some more time in Stockton. It's our uh, in Sacramento new new location. Stockton, kind of a younger guy. What was kind of the uh, the comfortability like right away? Um. Well, so in college, I'll backtrack. I took a class uh, in college at Northeastern before I knew I wanted to even do this. Um, it was just a fun class that I had the availability for to fit in. Uh, I was uh, sports broadcasting. And it was taught by Joe Castiglione, who's yep. uh, the longtime voice of the Red Sox. Ah, that's Happen- huge for you. He's your guy. You're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I, happened, I happened to take it in the fall of 2004 while they were going oh on their way to win the World Series. Yeah. It's pretty serendipitous, the timing of it all. Uh, but Joe has a great line. He goes, it takes a lifetime to prepare to call a baseball game. Like you prepare as you go and it doesn't, it doesn't ever stop. You know, you get into your forties, fifties, sixties, like you're still encountering new things. Uh, you're seeing certain situations for the first time and developing a feel for how the game is evolving. So I guess to answer your question, like, yeah, it took a little while to develop a, a style and and kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a rapport with the audience. I've always tried to have that, but just, I guess, kind of a style that works. And I, I think my, my bottom line is I never want to be or come off as sounding like someone else. Like I always want to be myself. Um, and that's kind of the covenant I have with the audience is here's me, here I am, uh, you know, at the ballpark and you're getting exactly what I'm seeing today and how I'm feeling today. And I think when you develop that over time with your audience is when you start to develop, you know, something a little special, but it takes a lot of time. Like it, it doesn't happen right away. And, you know, there's no formula. I think, and especially as we get evolving in sports broadcasting, like I think people are going to develop formulas on how to do things. And I'm the least formulaic guy ever when it comes to this. Like I want every broadcast to sound the way it's supposed to sound. And it's going to sound maybe different every time, but every single time you're always just going to get me. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm not going to try and be anybody else but myself. So that's the bottom line as far as stylistically and, and how I've developed this the skill over time over now close to two decades. And there's also the storytelling aspect that I'm interested in. And, and you know, again, major league broadcasters, there's kind of a lot more to go off of there's a lot more known about the players when they get to the big leagues in triple a 
You know, there's some guys who are viewed as organizational depth pieces that probably will never see the big leagues. And if they do, it's only going to be for a short period of time. But you also have to have some anecdotes in there about these players and about, um, you know, everything going on. So what is the process like in, in trying to come up with a good story? Is it something you usually already know? Do you prepare for it? Do you know it? And then you have to kind of fine tune the details of it. What is the the art of storytelling on air? Um, it boils down to having conversations with, with players, with people, um, you know, you can't do, you can't do this job properly when you seal yourself off in a press box and try and just Google your way through it. Like you have to go down to batting practice. You have to go down to the clubhouse. Obviously you travel with the guys and that's kind of time where y'all run into the guys on the road and say hi. And if, you know, guy wants to hang, we'll hang. I have friends that I've had the pleasure of, of uh, connecting with again in AAA that I had in Stockton, like guys like Dan Straley and Seth Frankoff, who were Dan, I had uh, Dan Straley, friend of the show. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's the greatest. So he was like, he was like one of my best friends uh, in, in the game. So he, he was with Reno in 2022 and we reconnected. Uh, we were great friends in Stockton. I got to know his family back in 2011 and like, as fate would have it 11 years later, we're back on the same team in Reno. And so, you know, but it allowed me like there's case in point, like having had that experience back then, it allowed me to tell Dan's story in a way probably nobody else could because they didn't know Dan back when he was a, a 26th round pick out of Marshall trying to develop a change up in order to get to the next level, you know, and that's all of a sudden he gets this change up and a nasty slider and things click. And in two years, he goes from a nobody to, to, a big league pitcher. So, you know, I, it, it, the art of storytelling comes down to putting in the time, getting to know people, um, you know, on an honest level, not on a level where you're trying to break news or you're trying to get inside info, just on a human being type level uh, where you make conversation and you get to hear their stories from them and then, and then process it in the way you're going to process it and tell it the way you're going to tell it. And there's no shortcuts to that, which I, I think when you listen to seasoned broadcasters, especially ones that have been in the minor leagues for a long period of time, there's there's a little bit of a difference uh, compared to the people that maybe were, were fast tracked and didn't go through 14 years of riding a bus in the Cal League. You know, it's just you can't you can't shortcut that experience. And I feel very lucky to have had that experience for all those years. And it's made me, I think. Uh, be able to be better at AAA because I was I spent so much time riding buses in the Cal League. I love that you can't Google your way through it, and and that's funny because you know even for somebody like me when I prepare for like podcasts with with you know current or you know a lot of a lot of time current minor league players, and you try to Google your way through it, there's not art like you can't no. find an article on the Athletic about Tanner Andrews, right? Who came on and yeah. great guy, Tanner. You can't find anything. Yeah, you can't find anything about him. You can't find anything about, uh, you know, different players. So I mean, that's a good way. You, you kind of have to do your research in different ways. So, um, and and a lot of that is talking to the person. And and, and you know what, we're getting we're getting to a point where people don't want to talk to people anymore. Like we're, we're, it's so convenient to pick up your phone and be like, Oh, I'm just going to search this person. Whatever I find, I find, you know, because we're in an age now where I don't think we have as many face-to-face conversations because we're just doing this, you know, we're, we're, we're texting all the time and we're Googling all the time, but you got to push yourself to, to have those interactions. And that's the only way you're going to be able to tell someone's story to, to its fullest. 
Yeah, hundred percent. That's a good anecdote there uh, for anybody that wants to be a broadcaster. Um, so you you have a lot of hand in your broadcast, and what I mean by that is, are you self producing? Like, obviously, in the Cal League, there's probably less help than in the PCL. But like, what is that the the behind the scenes of how to get a broadcast to run? Because I know there might be some times where a televised game, the locally televised games that you guys do in Sacramento, there might be a truck or something. There might be producers, but like. Are you res- how much how much are you responsible for during the course of a broadcast and the preparation leading up to it? So it depends. So the so the TV side, I'll tackle that first because it's easy. So on Saturdays, I work with Steve Sachs and Amy G on yep. the local CBS affiliate, and so they produce that. So they have people in the truck or actually back in the studio that that run it and and produce it. And the TV broadcast is a, such a different animal than the the radio broadcast. But um, the radio broadcast, it depends. So. You know, with with Pacific Basketball, we're on iHeartRadio, and I I I can produce it myself. I have in the past uh, where I like VNC into the computer in Modesto and run the station. I just I've gotten to be able to do that for years, and I was familiar with it. But I have a board op now, so they got us a board op after a while. Um, you know, in Sacramento with the Rivercats, we don't as of right now we're not on terrestrial radio, so it's internet only, and basically it's a it's a stream. You pop up the the uh, streaming encoder. You start it, and then I have uh, software that the team provides me where they load the spots on there. And uh, yeah, I'm responsible for getting into the the breaks, you know, the ins and outs, and all that. So yeah, there's some self-producing going on, but uh, nothing like no real terrible heavy lifting that gets in the way of my of my game, uh, my game prep, or or actually calling the game. And I could be wrong, but the last few years have been so huge, I feel like, for minor league broadcasts because the the access to the MILB TV. Uh, and I feel like more people, I saw it in the press box sometimes, I'd be looking over like around and people would have the, the broadcasts on their screen. It'd be a split screen of like Richmond and Sacramento. And like until the last few years, I have never seen so many people like even on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and people are live tweeting the games, you know, that are going on and a lot more people I feel like are listening and watching minor league baseball. Do you feel the same? I do. I do. And I think they've done a, a great job making it accessible for people, you know, with MILB TV and then with the the streams, I mean, you can get pretty much anybody's audio stream for free. So I, I think people are uh, getting more into, into the minor league games. And then, you know, now you have, Guys, I'll, I'll use the Diamondbacks for an example because I was with Reno for in 2021, 2022. You know, for that fan base during those years, especially 2021, you didn't have anything to really watch at the big league level. Like that team was losing a record number of games. Whereas, if if you're a shrewd fan and you understood what was going on in the system, you knew that that Reno team might turn into something special, which it did. And so you hopped on and watched the the Aces games or listened to the Aces games and. You got to know, you know, Alec Thomas and Corbin Carroll and Tommy Henry and, and those guys. Uh, so I think fans are getting smarter and realizing that, hey, you know, my team might be terrible right now at the major league level, but look who's coming up. And I want to I want to get on the ground floor with these prospects. And uh, baseball has done a great job of of allowing people to, to do that. And fans are getting smarter about their prospects, too. I think mm-hmm. that's like, like you just yeah. mentioned. And like Corbin Carroll, we hear about him from the time he's drafted. And, you know, he's he's mentioned in like possible trade packages. He's mentioned in like, when are they going to call him up? And 
when you're mentioned enough, like the curiosity in a person kind of gets the best of them and then they'll go tune in. So uh, a lot, a lot more viewership that I've seen. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, just kind of going on a different topic here about, you know, the, the shifting between double A AA and triple A for a player. Um, I know it's, it's part of the drill, right? Guys, especially guys with options. Um, what have you seen like in talking with players, you know, right when they come back from the big leagues, is it kind of like a, a determination and, and this th- has nothing to do with the bitterness question, but for whatever reason, the word bitter keeps haunting me uh, mm-hmm. that I use that. Uh, do you like, is it, is it determination? Is it um, a sense of like, I, not, not sadness, but kind of dismay. What What is yeah. the conversation that you have when a guy does come back to Sacramento after being in the big leagues? You know, I guess it, it depends on the player and their situation. So like I'll use Wade Meckler for an example, yeah. right? Like I don't think Wade expected that in his first year being, you know, who, who he was out of Oregon state, a full-time pro, twice, I mean, the <laughs> ultimate underdog that he was going to get big league time this past year, you know? So for him coming back, <clears throat> excuse me, I think was <clears throat> was a little bit different than a guy that say, you know, like I'll I'll throw Sean Jelly out there for example, who has been up you know so many times, and it's like, man, am I gonna stick? You know, um, not that not that Sean was bitter, but like just using that as an example of like someone who I think expected to be up there and stick up there and has to be on the shuttle for now, you know, who had options and 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 he was a guy that unfortunately for him had the options and you know the giants wanted to play those cards the way they played them you know whereas with wade it's like oh man like i i tasted the big leagues and like that was really cool and now i'm on the 40 man and now it feels like the sky's the limit so it i think it's it's a case by case basis but what i do know is that everyone that goes up there never wants to leave because it's so it's 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 a different it's a different world you know um it's it's charter flights and not Southwest and, you know, someone's going to get your bag for you. And the the clubhouses are obviously amazing. Like it's, it's big league. So uh, I think that's the common thread there with, with players who come back, but it's a case by case basis, whether or not, you know, their level of being disgruntled, I guess we'll call it mm-hmm. uh, whether they're going to be disgruntled or, or not. And how I Another side question, how big are rehab assignments in the minor leagues? Because I feel like the the PR has a great time with it, right? It's promoted everywhere. It's like, like even if it's a guy like Austin Slater's coming back to Sacramento, like it's put out there and I'm sure it was stocked and it's like, oh my God, Josh Donaldson, you know, is going to play a game here. And I've seen it. I, I can't remember who it was. I went to a San Jose Giants game one time and it was like, Mark DeRosa and and like people, more people came because Mark DeRosa was there for, for like mm-hmm. a day. Uh, I mean, it's got to be it's got to be fun to see some of the rehab guys come down there. And even if it's just for a few days, it seems like it's a huge deal to like, you know, maybe it gives you an interview that you know you're going to do when you show up to the ballpark that day and you don't have to like figure out who am I going to talk to today for you know an interview. So what is that like with the rehab guys? You know, it's it's a bigger deal at the lower levels of the minors. I think in AAA, like sometimes I don't even know. I'm like, wait, is this guy a rehab or is he? (laughs) Especially with the Giants on our roster, like especially with the Giants, it's like, okay, like what is this classified as? Like, okay, this is a technically a rehab assignment, okay. But you know, in Stockton for all those years, I think high A is a cool level to have a rehab assignment because because high A you kind of still had high level prospects. You know, I remember that that. 2014 Stockton Ports team was ridiculous. We had Matt Olson, 
and and Chad Pinder <sighs> and Daniel Robertson and Renato Nunez and Bruce Maxwell and Bo Taylor and the list goes on and on. Brian Healy, if I had mentioned it, but um, you know, you have those high level prospects and then you might have Josh Reddick come in, you know, and like Josh Reddick was always a fun rehab in stocks. And it seemed like we had him a bunch. He joined us for like a week on the road in Southern California one time. And, you know, at that low le lower level of the minor leagues, you're not used to having a guy like Josh Reddick hanging around. And I remember uh, we were in high desert and we ended up, we stayed at this terrible place, as you might imagine in, in the high desert like it's there's not much out there so there was a sports bar right next to the hotel we were staying at which is the only place to get a bite to eat after the game and so like the whole team is there and uh, reddick came in and he was just one of the dudes like if you've ever met josh reddick you know there's no pretentiousness like he was literally one of the guys um and at the end of the night he ended up picking up the tab for the whole restaurant um and like no one was expecting that but at that level of, of baseball, like, you're just like, oh my God, like this guy picked up the check, you know, for, for like everybody. And for the guys, especially, it was cool to see that, to see someone come back and, and like who taught them how to operate as a big leaguer. And it resonated with a lot of the guys. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of the guys are like, man, if I ever have a chance to go on a rehab assignment and come back, I'm going to, I'm going to buy, you know, the spread, or I'm going to pick up the check at a restaurant. And like, you saw that a lot. It resonated with those guys. Uh, at the lower levels, the minor leagues. So like teams do have fun with it. It's different at triple a than it is in the lower levels for sure. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, a few more things here before we wrap, I asked Trey Wilson this and uh, he, he said that uh, one time he was calling a, uh, uh, a game and there's a fly ball to center field. And he said, Oh, fly. He called a fly out. And then he looked down and it, and then he, and he looked back up and the ball went over the outfielder's head. Right. So yep. everybody has these moments. Have you ever had a moment where you're like, man, I messed that up. And, oh, and this is a gosh, weird question, yeah. but like, what's your worst mistake? Oh gosh. Yeah. And, and look, like if you're a young broadcaster out there, it's okay. Like you're, you're going to have those moments where you, you know, you, you missed it or, you know, you, you don't know what's going on. And I think in those moments you're, you just need to be honest with the audience. Like you don't try and cover it up and just say, boy, I must've missed that. I'm going to, so a quick little anecdote before I, I get into mine. So <laughs> what made me feel better about, about messing up was one time I was listening to a recap of, it was the Giants game. It just ended. I think they were playing the Blue Jays. This is maybe like 10 years ago. And I'm in my car listening to the post game rap and they're playing the highlights. Right. So Miller's, you know, John Miller's introducing highlight you know and he's like and you know the giants were trailing two to one and then you know uh jose bautista came up and da 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 and like then they go into the call you know and so john they play john's call and john ends up giving the complete wrong score of the game like it's like and there's a home run you know and the blue jays lead five to two and like they come back and john's like well i must have been hallucinating because the score was actually <laughs> three to one, you know, like he, he completely, and it was just this hilarious moment where he was like, I effed it, you know, like I yeah. completely left. And it was just this moment of good humor. And for John to acknowledge that it's like, Hey, it happens, you know, like, I don't know what I was seeing there, but it happened. So I think for me, one that stands out is we were in Reno and it was this incredible play in 2021 where uh, Nick Heath tagged on a shallow fly ball to I don't know if it was left center, right center. And he tagged from second and scored. 
And so I, I didn't realize he was going to try and do that. So, you know, I record the pop out, I look down and there's Nick Heath chugging to the plate and he's so fast. He's like, that's his best tool is his speed. And I'm like, wait a minute. And here comes Nick Heath. And like, I, I thought the ball was caught and like it, the ball was caught but he took two bases, you know, and I just, I looked down to record it and I completely missed what he was doing. Like, I don't know if the outfielder was lollygagging. I don't know if Nick thought that he was at a bad angle to throw and like turned on the jets, but like, I don't know how Nick Heath scored here, but he scored and uh, yeah, you know, and I, I just whiffed, I didn't see it. And so it goes, you know, like you're a human being. And unfortunately today we live in a world where your mistakes get put up on on Twitter and on social media and awful announcing and all that. And I, I really don't like that. I mean, I think everybody, I guess, is fair game to be judged in their job, but you know, for, for broadcasters who are trying to call a game and, and sometimes you, you miss something for them to be ridiculed for things like that. You know, it's, you know, back in the day, do you think Harry Carey probably missed some things, you know, like, but they didn't wind up on awful announcing that it just, it is what it is, you know? Did he miss some things? I mean, <laughs> uh, probably like, or he made things up. Like we just live in a different world where you're up on a different kind of high wire when you're doing this. And that's unfortunate, but I, I would advise anyone out there who's a young broadcaster to, to not beat yourself up too much over, over making some mistakes like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Harry Carey, there are some days, man, where he didn't even know he was at Wrigley field calling a baseball game. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> Really, I can't even. I'm not going to break it out right now, but no, that's a good anecdote. You're a hot dog. Would you eat yourself? Yeah, exactly. Here is the it's Wrigley Field. Yeah, he's he's a legend, and and John and Dave are legends too. That's a funny yeah. anecdote on the Bautista. There was one this past year where I was I was on my way home from somewhere. I wasn't working the game, and it's like there's a foul back and almost hits Dave's computer <laughs> and, the, and the, you hear Dave go, Oh no. <laughs> but, but that's like, that's theater yeah. of the mind, right? That's what this all is. That's the other element of this is it's theater of the mind. It's, yeah. and that's what makes doing a radio broadcast so fun is you can take the listener on a journey. You can make it funny at times. You can make it sad at times. You can make it triumphant at times. Like you are telling the story and something as stupid as a foul ball coming back into the booth. And you having that interplay with your partner, like John and Dave, you know, I mean, that endears, that endears you to the audience even more. Yeah, no doubt. And, and there's a, a time where, where Dave taught John Wordle in the booth and it was yeah. like an eight minute and it was good. There's nobody out. It was like a fresh start to the inning and they just, the whole half inning was a Wordle. And then yeah. the next half inning, it was like, I think I got the word. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and, and I, I know I've kept you for too long, just no, not for at things all. here. Um, I, I, I want to ask about, you made your, you have major league experience, right? You've made your big league debut already. Yeah. One game, right? Game. Yeah. So, I mean, tell me about those A's angels, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm sure one game, I'm sure there's many to come. That's just me foreshadowing. Uh, so what was that game like just kind of getting your feet wet with that one game? Cause I'm sure it was either terrifying and exciting at the same time. It was everything. Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrifying. It was exciting. It was, I mean, it was a moment, right? I mean, you dream about that. You're not, you're not sometimes when you've spent 14 years in, in Stockton and you're at some of these ballparks, you feel so far away from ever doing it at the highest level. And I think outside of anything, like outside of it being, you know, like, for your ego, whatever, like, that's not what I'm about. But 
I think anyone that really does this for a long time wants to be able to do it at the highest level. Like who doesn't want to do their job and have a chance to do it at the highest level and to have that proving ground. And I was so lucky that the A's gave me that, that opportunity. And I know, you know, Vince Catronio is huge uh, in, in helping us all get some of those fill-in opportunities. And the A's have been, I think, the best team in allowing their minor league people to, to go and fill in and do these games. And I, I really appreciate that because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not like we deserve it. It's not like we deserve this favor, but like, we've also put in time and we're, we're good storytellers at that point. You know, I mean, guy like Bob Hards in Midland, who's been doing it for longer than I have finally gets to call a major league game. And he should, because he's really good at it. Like he's done it for all these years and he has stories to tell. And I think the audience can appreciate that as opposed to someone coming in who might be a little more social media famous, who might be a splashier name. Like, no, like Bob Hards should be the guy that does that, you know, and the A's have been great with that, but, that experience for me on September 3rd was amazing. Um, I remember being that morning. So the, the, the ports played in San Jose to finish their regular season. Um, and my best friend at the time lived in San Jose. So I just crashed at his house instead of driving to Stockton and coming back the next day. And so I woke up the next day at my buddy's house in San Jose, like full of nervous energy. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go on a run, just kind of try and get, get some of these, you know, nerves out. And I just started my run and my phone rings and it's Ken Korak. And like to see that name pop up on your phone, you're like, oh man. So I was filling in for Ken that night. And so Ken uh, called to congratulate me on my first major league game and to like offer bits of advice and to talk about his experience with his first game. And I mean, that, that meant a lot. Like that, that was a moment for me. Like when, when Ken, hopefully a future hall of famer, called me like it was such an incredible like gesture on his part and uh, and it really touched me so uh that helped settle me in a little bit i remember pulling up to the coliseum and uh this is maybe it was the 19 so it been five years before we had daniel robertson come through with stockton and he always wore this uh piece of tape on his wrist and it said byb and i asked him about it once i'm like D-Rob, what's the BYB? He goes, oh, he goes, my dad, who had passed away, his dad passed away from cancer like a year before that. Uh, when Daniel got drafted, he, out of high school, he wasn't sure if he was good enough to make it. And his dad said, believe you belong, um, BYB. So I, I remember thinking about that that day. And I was like, believe you belong. Like, don't be too nervous. No matter what happens, be yourself. And everything was great after that, you know, and I wrote that BYB in my scorebook. I hope I hope I get to see D-Rob one day to thank him for for telling that story to me because it helped me on that day. Fantastic. We'll, we'll get him on the show. We'll do like a, a panel with you guys reflecting. Back. Cool. <laughs> tell, tell some Stockton Port story. Get Straley, oh, too. Man. And um, another guy that I, yeah, another guy that I had. And you probably remember him. BJ Boyd. Remember that? BJ, name? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who's yes. a part of whatever's going on with the Oakland the Ballers. Oakland Bees, right? The Oakland Bees. So he's good dude and he's had a very interesting path that's a lot of fun to chat about and he's cool about it um but he was a good get too um final thing here before we wrap up some some general baseball stuff the giants are gonna have to rely a lot on their minor league system this year a lot of their young players that they saw a little bit last season whether it be kyle harrison in the rotation whether it be luis matos whether it be marco luciano luciano who farhan zaidi has already come out and said hey he's gonna get the first licks at shortstop uh, what do you envision for some of these Casey Schmidt too, another guy, uh, Ryan Walker, you could go down. I mean, they had like 12 debuts us. It was ridiculous. It was cool though. Um, but I mean, 
what do you envision for a lot of these guys, especially some of the ones that I just mentioned with with Harrison, Matos, Luciano? Because uh, you've seen them, you, you've seen mm-hmm. them before. You've seen all of them in 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 your your short stint so far in Sacramento, but you've seen them enough to probably get an idea of what they could bring to the table. Yeah, man, I love those guys. Like they are they are the real deal, high level prospects. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because it's the Giants. Like they, these guys are, I think, legit. I think what I what I wished would have happened last year. And I've, I've said this, you know, whenever I've been interviewed about these guys, like, especially a guy like Kyle Harrison, like I wish they stretched him out a little bit more, yep. you know, um, in, and in May, especially like, I understand with April, you're, you know, you're going to be cautious, but I, I, I wish they'd taken him six innings, 90 pitches starting in May and, and let him, let him go through the league a couple of times, you know, see teams a couple different times, see the lineup two to three times, uh, if you can, you know, and I think that that experience only helps a guy like Harrison, who's got all the stuff in the world. I mean, he's got stuff that obviously can can blow hitters away, but the the other elements of his development, I think, is being able to coach himself out there on the mound. And when you only go through the lineup once or you only have 50 pitches to work with, like you're not going to have that type of experience. So um, I wish they would have let him go a little more and have a, a, a longer leash um, as far as, but I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. Um, you know, as far as like guys like Casey, like I, I was stunned obviously when they called him up right away in, in April, like they pulled the trigger on these guys really, really quick. Um, and, and hopefully that big league experience, like we were talking about before, hopefully it, it helps them. And I know, you know, a guy like Casey, obviously is going to be hungry to get right back there and, and to hopefully be, uh, you know, the future third baseman of the giants for, for years to come. But um, it's going to be interesting to see what development path they choose for these guys, especially after last year when a lot of them were up and down. Um, I remember who who was it when I thought I thought we were getting hoaxed. Was it was it Matos maybe or no? It was Luciano. I think it was Luciano had been up like a couple of games in Sacramento, and uh, I remember I think I think Joe Rizzo texted me. He's like, "So Luciano's getting called on." Huh? I was like, "Huh?" I was like, "Is this is this real? Like, there's been a couple of games and." I mean, they were, they were quick on some of these. So that being said, I wonder what they're going to do this year. If they're going to let them develop more at AAA, if they're really going to push them. And that's obviously going to come from, from new leadership and Bob Melvin. And I'm excited to see what kind of feel he has for the situation. Cause I think that's the most important thing with a manager is having feel for your players. Um, and, and I know Bob, Bob's feel is exceptional. So I'm excited to see where he takes them in terms of the development path this year yeah no absolutely and i'm glad that you mentioned the uh the pitch count stuff for harrison because that's a lot of what kind of we were wondering too is like what's going on with the way that they're developing some of these like these these arms down there because i would go back and look at the box score of every minor league game and i look at richmond i look at eugene i look at san jose and sacramento and it would be like 65 pitches or four innings, like every single yeah. outing. And and I think Harrison's like, you know, he gets called up and he's immediately throwing 90 pitches, like in his first, you know, three of his first four starts. It's like, yeah. this is not what he was doing in, in, in Sacramento. So it was kind of interesting to see. And it's... I, yeah, and I know other teams of other organizations, if they're trying to get a pitching prospect from the Giants in a trade and they don't have any data second time through the lineup or third time through the lineup, like they're going to turn that page real quick. So I don't, I don't think it's helping anybody to be honest. I think the injury rates are the same. So, I mean, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that here before we, we close. 
Yeah, I, I think I mean obviously it's different. It's case by case with with the the arm, and I don't I don't claim to have all the answers. I really don't know like medically what's right. I don't think even the medical experts at times know the best way to develop the arm, other than like obviously don't beat it to hell. But you know I think it was maybe back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, like around that time. Sports Illustrated actually had a great piece on on Nolan Ryan and Mike Maddox and what they were doing in the Rangers organization where they would not give their pitchers pitch limits like they're basically like you you go until we tell you to go this go this went all the way down to the minor leagues I saw it they were in Bakersfield at the time in the Cal League and I remember watching their prospects develop and it's like hey don't go out there with a number in your head we'll tell you when you're done and and we're not going to give you a ceiling here. Um, and we're going to see how you're feeling that night, how you're looking. And we'll tell you, and we want you to long toss and we want you to, you know, really stretch your arm out. And I feel like there's something to that. I really do. I feel like there's something to letting your guys go out there and, and get to, you know, 80, 90, a hundred, maybe 110 pitches. I don't know if you're, if you're a guy that's built for that, but again, it's a case by case basis. Like, I don't think the data is there. Like to me, if a guy's going to break, he's going to break. You know, no matter how how you try and save him. I mean, the A's, the A's, I can tell you, tried everything to save AJ Puck from Tommy John, you know, and to save Jesus Lazardo from Tommy John. They tried, they were so conservative. And I think at the end, uh, like nothing they did helped them avoid going under the knife. Like it was it's just, inevitable. It was, yeah. It was, it was going to happen. Like AJ Puck was a max delivery guy that, you know, had a violent delivery and he was going to break. Like you could kind of see it, you know? So I don't think there's any, any, set way to go about preventing guys from getting injured. And I think having said that, like, do you want, do you want to develop your guys to be able to gut it out for you and hopefully a world series game someday, like, like a Madison Bumgarner, because like, they're not going to get to that point. If you cap them at 60 pitches in June, like, it's just not, it's not going to happen. That's, that's my take on it. I could be wrong, but I'm going to have a take, you know, I feel like I'm qualified yeah. to have a take and that's mine. And, and honestly, it seems like there's no better generation equipped for, a, you know, big pitch count than this one, because in the off season, we saw all these videos of, you know, pitchers pushing cars up hills. Right. And then, you know, they're, they're in the weight room, they're deadlifting a million pounds. And then they get to the regular season. And it's like, we cap them off at, these are extraordinary athletes. Like the, the guys in past generations, they were strong, no knock on them, but they weren't doing the physical conditioning that these guys are doing. And these guys, are being told to do less, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. It's kind of a waste in my mind. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It's and only, and only time will tell only time will tell, but if I'm, if I'm going to come up with a hypothesis, that's, that's going to be it. What I just told you. Really good stuff. Uh, Zach, man, kept you again, kept you for way too long. Not but, at all, man. It's uh, I really appreciate the time. Uh, and I hope a lot of young broadcasters listening could take something from this and, and, uh, and run with it. Cause uh, I know I certainly did. And I know a lot of the young people who, Listen, a lot of people listen and they tell me that they want to be broadcasters. And I, that's why I'm kind of going through this stretch of trying to get some broadcasters on. So you seem to be a, a really, really good, good wordsmith of wisdom for uh, for the broadcasting community. So I appreciate you coming on, man. It was a blast. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate you having me, man. Anytime. And, and everybody could follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Bayruti, B-A-Y-R. O U T Y. I'm sure you get Zach Bay Rowdy quite a bit too. I do. Yeah. Yeah. No, nope. <laughs> Bay, Bay Rudy. It's uh, just like the capital of Lebanon. Just think about Beirut.
Yeah, I had to go look at a YouTube video of you saying it before I said anything. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I had to make sure it's Beirutti. I don't want to rowdy. Rowdy is rowdy Telez. So yeah, that's... more rowdy, rowdy Piper. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> rowdy the the route for your yeah router for your Wi-Fi. Whatever. We could go all day. All right, <laughs> and, and everybody could follow the podcast too at RizzoCast on Twitter and Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you find your stuff. Go listen there. Rate, drop a review. And uh, yeah, more to come and see you next time.